hip because I don't know what the modern term is for hip. But I want to show you uh, a photograph of a uh, pop icon and see if you can tell me who this individual is. Anybody you can talk in churches, all right. Who is that? That's Katie Perry. That's exactly right. Uh, she's a 34-year-old singer, songwriter, television celebrity. Her original name was Kathleen or Catherine Elizabeth Hudson. And uh, in 2007, at the age of 23, she signed a record contract with Capitol Records and now has an estimated worth of $83 million. And on 2013, the fashion magazine Marie Claire uh, interviewed Katie, uh, talked a little bit about her life, and uh, this is what Katie had to say. She says, I don't believe in a heaven or a hell or an old man sitting on a throne. I believe in a higher power, higher than me, because that keeps me accountable. I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Christian, but I still feel like I have a deep connection with God. Now what's interesting about uh, that particular quote is that Katie was raised in a devout Christian home with a father and mother who were in full-time ministry uh, during her growing up years. Church was the, the center of her life. Uh, she went to, to Christian schools growing up. She regularly participated in youth groups. She aspired to be a gospel singer, but somewhere along the way, something happened. Somewhere along the way, Katie made a, a decision to reject Christianity, uh, to walk away from her parents' faith, to pursue things of the world, and from all accounts, at least from a worldly perspective, she's doing extremely well. And I share this with you this morning because Katie Perry gives us a modern-day example of Jacob's twin brother Esau, whose life we're going to focus on over this weekend and next. Uh, since the very beginning of this message series that uh, we kicked off looking at the last 25 chapters of the book of Genesis back in March, uh, Jacob, Esau's brother, has been the, the primary focus of everything that we have been looking at, and, and Esau has been kind of a big player in it all. But in Genesis chapter 36, the Bible turns its focus onto Esau and his descendants. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, open it up to Genesis chapter 36. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. You can open up your smart app if you would like. And we're going to spend our time this morning in the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 36. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to take one of those Bibles with you because we want everyone in our church family not only have one, but to uh, be reading it on a daily basis. And as you look at the heading of Genesis chapter 36, I would imagine that some of you have to kind of hold back a little bit of a gasp because the heading that's there says Esau's descendants. And yes, this weekend and next, we are going to look through uh, the listing of Esau's family tree. And uh, I know that sounds extraordinarily exciting, uh, it's like the equivalent of uh, going over to a friend's house and they say, hey, we've got some great plans for tonight. And they, they break out some old dusty uh, photo albums of some past vacations or perhaps slide in a, you know, a DVD of their kid's third birthday or something like that. And you want to gouge your eyes out. Uh, but I promise you that this morning uh, we will do our best and I'm sure Mike Bongo will do his best uh, to uh, make sure that you are engaged. We're going to spare from, from 
entirety of uh, the chapter and listening to me butcher all of these uh, ancient words, but we will look at the first eight verses. So if you could stand, please, in honor of God's word. Genesis chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ida, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Olibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibian, the Hivite, and Basma, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nehabah, uh, uh, and Ida bore Esau, to Esau, uh, Elzah, uh, Basma bore Raul, Olibama bore Jeush, Jelam, and Korah, these are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. And Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, and all his beasts, and all his property that he acquired in the land of Canaan, and he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now before we dive real deep into things here this morning, I want to make just a couple quick observations from the text. In the first uh, couple verses, verses 2 and 3, uh, we see that Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. And we read about this event way back in Genesis chapter six, uh, 26. And we told that, that these wives made the lives of Esau's mother and father, Rebekah and Isaac, bitter. Now, why would these women make the lives of Esau's parents bitter? It was because Esau married outside of his family's tribe, outside of their faith. And he joined himself with, with women who, who were from surrounding nations who worshipped false gods, women who didn't share the same uh, spiritual uh, ideas and concepts that Esau's family did. And those marriages were a direct rejection of God, they were a direct rejection of Esau's parents, and they were a direct threat to Esau's faith. And some of us understand exactly what that is like. At one point or another, we've entered into a relationship, a romantic relationship with someone who doesn't share our faith and commitment to Christ, someone whose values are different than ours, values that are different uh, from the values of our family, someone who deep down inside, we know that they are not good for us. Sometimes uh, we do it for altruistic purposes. We think that, that if we entertain or engage in these people's lives, that, that we can be the rescuer, that we can, we can pull them back from, from worshiping false things and ultimately have them worship the God of the Bible. But what happens more times than not is rather than them becoming more like us, we ultimately become more like them. Other times we simply do it because we just really don't care. We really don't care about Jesus. We really don't care about what our family thinks. We really don't care about the future ramifications for our lives. We simply want to do what we want to do. And regardless of the reason, in the end, it typically ends badly, and many of us can testify to that very truth. Now, the second 
observation I want to make is in verses 4 and 5. And here we see uh, that Esau has children, and these children are born in the land of Canaan, in the promised land, the land that God had promised to, to Esau's grandfather, Abraham, his father, Isaac. And so Esau and his family are living in the land where God had called them to be. But all that changes in verses 6, 7, and 8 when he saw the sermons that he has too many possessions to stay in the land with his family. And so he leaves the land of his grandfather, his father, and his brother, and he moves his immediate family away from the promised land to the region of Seir, which is south and west of Israel towards the Red Sea. And whether Esau did this out of necessity, uh, whether he did it out of convenience or preference, or whether he did it because his life choices weren't compatible with his family, the fact of the matter is he leaves the very place that God had called their family to dwell. He didn't have to leave. He could have stayed. He could have downsized. He could have sold some of his flocks, simplified his life in order to stay in the promised land. But apparently the material things of life were far more important to Esau than the spiritual things of life. And the bottom line is this, folks. Like Katy Perry, Esau rejected the things of God and embraced the things of the world. And many of us have done the same thing in the past. And some of us are doing it right now. So the question I have for you this morning is, what in the world can we learn from the legacy of Esau's life? I have three simple lessons that I want to share with you. The first is this. Just because we are surrounded by God's blessings doesn't mean that we will embrace the things of God. Just because we, we grow up in a family that, that, that loves Jesus and loves the things of God and we're surrounded by the things of God doesn't mean that we're going to embrace the things of God. And from the very beginning of Esau's life, while he was still in his mother's womb, we see God working in unexpected and amazing ways. In Genesis 25, we read this, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If this is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. See, the first thing that we see from Esau's life is that his conception was supernatural. In the natural, Esau's mom and dad, they couldn't conceive a child. And something supernatural had to occur for him to be conceived. And God did just that based on the faithfulness of Esau's father, Esau's father, Isaac's prayers. And sadly, as we grow older, we tend to forget the great supernatural things that God has done for us in the past. And this is especially true when things don't go the way that we expect that they're supposed to go. Now, this was especially true for Esau, because from the moment that his mother conceived, God had decided to do something that was completely contrary to what typically happened in that culture. See, in that culture, in the ancient Middle East or Near East culture, traditionally the, the firstborn son would re receive the birthright. 
He would be the one who ultimately assumed leadership of the family once dad passed away. And so logically, it would be Esau, the firstborn, the first child out of the womb, that would be the firstborn and who would have the birthright. But God had planned something different. God had planned that Jacob, the second child out of Rebekah's womb, would ultimately receive the birthright. Now we don't know if Rebekah ever shared this with her boys, but regardless of whether she did or didn't, that was what God's plan was. But there's a second issue that, that, that's playing out here in Esau's young life. And it's revealed a little later in the next couple of verses, 27 and 28 of Genesis 25. And in these verses, we learn two other things. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You see, Esau and his twin brother, they were different. Esau was an outdoor man. He was a, a guy's guy, a, a, a man's man. He was, you know, shooting animals, gutting animals, uh, butchering animals. That's the kind of stuff he was doing. You know, he, you know reaching in, uh, grabbing up drugs from the ground and eating them, doing whatever, you know, guys who are different than me do, basically, all right? <laughs> you know, you know, if, 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 you know, think, you know, I think about this as a little aside for you, but I think about this all of the time, actually. You know, if, if, if like, chaos broke out into the world, and, like, they, all the grocery stores stopped having food, and we had to, like, get food ourselves, I'm dying. <laughs> That's what's happening. I mean, I, I, I don't know how, I, you know, I know how to shoot a handgun, but I don't know how to shoot a rifle. I mean, once I actually kill something, I could never bring it, you know, to, to carve that bad boy open and rip the guts out of that thing. I mean, you guys are sick. <laughs> but I'm coming to you when the world goes crazy, right? <laughs> so that's Esau. You know, he's an outdoor guy. But then there's Jacob. And, and, and Jacob, he's different. He's not less than, but he's different. He's a, he's a guy that likes to be at home. He's a... And he's a guy that likes to cook, and he's a, you know, a guy that, that likes to keep the house. He, he's like me, you know, I don't like to cook. I don't know who I'm like, all right? But that, that's, that's Jacob, which I believe led to something that no child has control over, and something that radically affects their life, and that's the favoritism of a parent. We're told that his dad, Isaac, loved Esau. And that his mom, Rebecca, loved Jacob. You know, parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, if you want to destroy your family, if you want to mess up your kids, your grandkids, your nieces and nephews, go ahead and play favorites. Favor one child over the other, and it will mess them all up. The favored child will become arrogant. The unfavored child will become resentful, and in the end, everybody loses. 
I really struggled with this. You know, I was an only child. I mean, my mom and dad, I was the favorite one because there was no one else to like me, right? But, but Kath and I, we've we had three kids, uh, two uh, biologically and, and Nicole adopted. And, and when, when Mikey was born, our firstborn, uh, I can remember uh, being there at the little company of Mary Hospital in Torrance, California, and Mikey had just come out of, of, of Kathy's womb, and, and I'm just holding him, and I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, man, I don't know that I could love anything more than this little guy. And as he, as he grew up and, and started to walk and talk, and we started to play at the beach and, and had fun, I only moved back home, and, you know, I'm like, I love this guy. And then I find out that Kathy is pregnant with our second son. And the thing that starts to come in my mind is, how in the world am I going to love this second child as much as I love this one? And then John came into the world, and I learned something really important. And it's this. That love is infinite. It's not final. I don't give, you know, Mikey 60% of my love and John 40% of my love because I can love them both 100 and 100. And then Kathy and I decided that, that we were going to adopt a child. And, and I can remember thinking, you know, how in the world am I possibly going to be able to love this adopted child more than, than, than children that are, are flesh of our flesh and bone of our bones? And then God showed us when Nicole came into our lives that, that while she may not have been conceived in Kathy's womb, she had been conceived in our hearts. And that, that we could love her just as much as we love Mike and just as we love John. And there's a tendency to, to want to play favorites because all our kids aren't going to behave the way that we want them to behave. Some of them are going to be more easy to parent than others, and it's going to be easy to think, oh, well, I like this one more. But that is, that is a, a path to destroy our kids. And I believe that, that Esau suffered under that. Now, he didn't have control over the fact that God decided to place a special calling on his younger brother. He didn't have a control over the favoritism that was played out by his mom and dad. The fact of the matter is life simply is not fair, it's not easy, and there are many things in this world that are completely out of our control. And we would all do well to remember that. What Esau, like you and me, did have control over something, and that was how he would respond to disappointment and hurt. And unfortunately, because life isn't fair and because it's not easy, sometimes in our anger or our confusion or our frustration and always, always, always in our sin, we make lousy decisions. And that's exactly what happened with Esau. You see, God didn't have to take away the birthright from Esau. Esau gave it away himself. Remember what happened in Genesis chapter 25, the last couple verses? Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. 
Therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? So Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And then the writer of Genesis, writing under the inspiration of God, writes this tiny little sentence, which is power-packed with complications and consequences, I should say. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You see, when the Bible says that Esau despised his birthright, it means that he didn't just consider it not valuable, but the whole idea of the birthright he found to be repugnant. He valued it so little that he was willing to trade it away for the temporal satisfaction of a bowl of soup. A lifetime of blessing kicked to the curb for a bowl of soup. Now friends, that is what many of us unfortunately do. At some point in our lives, we are surrounded by God's blessings. And those blessings might be a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa or an aunt or uncle who loves Jesus and who pours their life into us. Maybe we had godly friends or co-workers who were positive influences in our lives. Maybe we went to the Center for Champions and had a, had a mentor who, who poured themselves into our lives. Maybe we've been blessed by being part of a, a gospel-centered church or parachurch ministry that faithfully teaches the Word of God. Yet through our spiritual blindness and through our ignorance and through our pride and perhaps just our apathy, we despise all of that. We don't see the value in the gospel. We don't see the value in the people that God has placed in our lives. We don't see the value in God's word and the value of the forgiveness of sin. We don't even see our own sin. And so we fall for a lie that we don't need what God is offering. And we cast it aside just like Esau cast it aside. You see, the one, to the one rejecting what God is offering, it's not a big deal. But to those who love Jesus, and to those who love the one who's rejecting Jesus, it's a huge deal. When our loved one rejects the things of God, it hurts us in places that we could never have imagined. We can't understand why they are doing what they're doing. We cry out to God for answers. We do everything in our power to, to try to help them uh, to see the, the incalculable value of the gospel, the inordinate beauty of God's word, the pricelessness of salvation, but nothing at all seems to work. And when that happens, we need to remember that just because people are surrounded by God's blessings doesn't mean that they will embrace the things of God. We simply have no control over what others will ultimately do. And this brings us to the second thing that we learn from Esau's life, and it's this. When we reject the things of God, we inevitably embrace the things of the world. In the 4th century B.C., there was a, a really bright guy. Uh, some of you may have heard of him. His name was Aristotle. Aristotle was a, a philosopher, and he coined a term that uh, is used uh, a lot of times uh, in our world, and it's this, that nature abhors a vacuum. In other words, 
Uh, whenever there is a vacuum, whenever there is a void, something will rush in to fill it. And over the, the centuries, scientists and, uh, have debated if this concept is absolutely true in every realm of physics. And I'll, I'll spare you a, you know, a little uh, physics lesson on this, but for the most part, this concept plays out in life exactly how Aristotle postulated that it would. And we know how this works. We can take a perfectly tended garden, and you remove the gardener from the garden for just a couple, not even a couple weeks, just a week, and, and, and the weeds begin to, to take over, and all those void places there that you so carefully manicured are now filled with weeds. Clean out a closet, or a shed, or a garage, and before some of you are laughing right now because you're the ones who fill the void that the other person cleans, all right? But yet, you clean that place out, and someone in your family is filling it. When a leader dies or quits, it doesn't take long for someone to line up and want to run the show. The same is true spiritually. When we remove God and God's influence from our lives, other things are going to fill that void. And those other things are typically not good. Listen to Hebrews 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You see, Esau, as a result of despising his birthright, rejected God and embraced immorality and unholiness. You see, in the spiritual vacuum of his heart, it didn't take long for sin to fill it. Instead of marrying a, a, a woman or a women from his own tribe, from the people of God, he instead married Canaanite women, women who were idol worshipers. It wasn't a race thing. It was a, a, a spiritual thing. Instead of dealing in a mature and godly manner as it related to his brother, who was a horrific deceiver, Esau chose murder. When Jacob finally returns home after being terrified that Esau was going to kill him, Esau finds it in his heart to forgive him and to restore it. Yet Esau can't manage living in the midst of God's people. And so he ultimately moves further away. See, brothers and sisters, Christianity is a binary faith system. And what I mean by that is this. Either we love and obey Jesus and the gospel and God's word, or we love and obey the world. There's no third option. There's not two boxes and you can fill in something down below 
create a third one. It doesn't exist. There's no middle ground. There is no, I love Jesus, but. Listen to the words of 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This passage, it starts out with a very clear, very concise command, an instruction, something that we are supposed to do, and it is this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. That was a command that Esau would have struggled with because he loved the world and the things of the world. And notice what it says next. It says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, the reason why we shouldn't love the world and the things of the world is because the love of the world displaces God in our lives. The moment that we stop loving God, love for the world rushes in, even if we weren't intending for that to happen, because nature abhors a vacuum, and something always fills the void. Jesus speaks of the same thing in Matthew 6 when he says this, No one can serve two masters, for one will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot love God and money. You see, Jesus is using, he's using strong words here. He's using words love and hate. You see, we can either love and serve God and in turn hate or not be controlled by money or more broadly stated things and possessions. Or we can love and serve money and possessions and worldly things and in turn hate God. But we can't do both. Similarly, Jesus' half-brother James says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, Esau chose friendship with the world, and as a result, he ultimately made himself an enemy of God. And it's interesting, this would ultimately play out over the lives of his descendants that are recorded here in Genesis 36. You see, Esau's descendants were the Edomites, and they would become one of Israel's, God's people's most prominent enemies. If you look in Psalm 83, where there's a list uh, of the enemies of Israel, do you want to know who's at the top of the list? Edomites. Let's face it, every one of us has a choice to make. We can fill our lives with God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the Gospel, and reject the broken promises that the world has to offer. Or we can despise the things of God, create a vacuum in our lives, which will quickly be filled with all kinds of things of unimaginable sin and brokenness. Because when we reject the things of God, we will invariably embrace the things of the world. And that brings us to the last thing that we learn from Esau's life. The worldly success of the ungodly 
is ultimately a curse rather than a blessing. Now, some of you are saying to yourself, whoa. You're trying to tell me that those who are, have lots of worldly possessions and have been blessed with great health and, and beautiful families and nice homes and nice cars and all those kinds of things, you're trying to tell me, Mike, that those people are actually cursed. Well, if that's being cursed, I want to be cursed. That's what a lot of people are thinking. They're like, how can that possibly be? Yes, on the surface, it does seem that that would appear to be true. There are many people who want nothing to do with God, whose lives appear to be extraordinarily blessed. And no doubt that describes some of us sitting here right now, here at Living Water Community Church. Some of us have, have great jobs or, or comfortable retirement. We have nice homes, sweet rides, perhaps a, a picture-perfect family. We take vacations, we eat out, uh, we revel in our hobbies, we enjoy the finer things of life. We even come to church, but truth be told, that we really aren't interested in the things of God. Christianity is just something amidst all of these other things that take up my time, rather than the center of my life. And there's actually a, a theological term that explains why people can hate God, or ignore God, or be apathetic towards God, and still be blessed. It's a term called common grace. Common grace is the kindness and the blessing that God pours out on both the godly and the ungodly. And Jesus speaks of it in Matthew chapter 5 when he says this, You have learned or heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. See, Jesus is able to command us to love our enemies because Jesus has loved his enemies. And the way that he loves his enemies is through this thing called common grace. Regardless of whether you or I love God or you and I ignore God or hate God or don't want anything to do with God, God still graciously pours out his love upon us by allowing the sun to rise over our heads and the rains to fall on our fields and on our yards. For every one of us, he still gives us air to breathe, water to drink, blood that clots, governments that protect, and even though we are daily reminded of the evil that is in our world, it's not nearly as bad as it can be because God has restrained it, especially here in America. I mean, anyone here in this room right now want to go ahead and trade life in America for life in Afghanistan or, or Yemen or southern Sudan or Somalia? You see, through God's grace, his common grace, he gives us plants that gives us food and, and allows uh, thread to be extracted from the cotton and woven into clothing for us. He gives us uh, fuels that allow us to have power for lights and heat for transportation and the light, list goes on and on. 
Common grace explains why Katy Perry and others who completely reject Christianity still can live lives of incredible prosperity. And common grace explains why Esau, even though he despised God, became a father of a great nation. But there's a problem with common grace. And here's the problem. It doesn't say. Common grace does not save. Common grace blesses us while we're here on earth, but it does absolutely no good for us when we are standing before the judgment seat of God. Actually, rather than help us, common grace testifies against us when we ultimately stand before God. Common grace says this, you know, Mike, God poured out all of these wonderful things upon you. And rather than acknowledging God, rather than confessing your sin, rather than receiving Jesus Christ in faith, you know what you did, Mike? You ignored him. But it doesn't have to be that You and I don't have to live like Esau. We don't have to go through life continually despising God, passionately seeking the things of the world, deceiving ourselves into thinking that everything is just fine because we're enjoying worldly blessings, whatever they might be, only to discover at the end of our lives that it was all for nothing. Look back at 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. All of those things that we pursue other than God, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of all that we embrace, they come from the world and not from God. And all the world and all of its desires, they're passing away. And so will those who put their trust in them. But it says this, whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the logical question then is what in the world is the will of God? See, it's God's will for you, and it's God's will for me to be freed from the penalty of our sin and restored to him through repentance of sin and through faith in the Son, Jesus. You see, what Esau despised, Jesus embraced. Esau pursued the things of the world and rejected the things of God. Jesus pursued the things of God and, and rejected the things of the world. When betrayed by his brother, Esau vowed to kill his brother in revenge and hate. And when betrayed by you and me, Jesus gave his life and forgiveness and love so that we might live. And so, brothers and sisters, I challenge you. Examine your hearts. Where is your 
Be honest with yourself. Are you like Esau? Really deep down inside, when you sneak out of this place, you really despise the things of God and desire the temple blessings of this world? Or are you like Jesus, who desired the things of God so much that he willingly gave his life on the cross of Calvary? paying the penalty for your sin and for mine, then raising again from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all, so that everyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that they might be saved. See, godly upbringing doesn't imply a godly life. And earthly prosperity doesn't imply heavenly blessings. And every one of us must determine for ourselves what will we ultimately do with Jesus? Will we fall on our faces before him? Will we confess our sin? Will we, will we graciously receive his grace and forgiveness through faith and enjoy the security of eternity within heaven forever? Will we ultimately despise him, embrace the things of the world, that which promises much, which is never lasting. Esau chose the latter. And sadly, it didn't end very well. What will you and I ultimately choose? Let's pray together. Father, in your word, you say, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. You obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession. But Lord, you also say in your word, but if you turn your heart away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work powerfully in the lives of those who are here in our church family. I pray, Heavenly Father, for those who have fallen on their faces and have confessed their sin and who have in faith received your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, that, that Lord God, that they would pursue him and your gospel and your word with every fiber of their being, Lord, that they would uh, reject the temptations of this world that, that, Lord, are so incredibly powerful. Instead, would, would follow you in humility and love, trusting that you will meet every one of their needs. And, Lord, for those here in our church family who, who we love and who, and who you love, Heavenly Father, who have, have yet to repent of their sins and receive you in faith, Heavenly Father, would you... Show them the pleading nature of the things of this world. Lord, this world promises much, it delivers so incredibly little. God, would you guide their steps, open their eyes, change their hearts, show them how incredibly beautiful your son is. And Lord, might they always recognize, and might every person who's claimed your name always recognize, it is because of the work that Jesus has done and Jesus alone has done on the cross 
than any one of us has ever made acceptable to yourself. It's not by our works, but by your grace. And through your son's name we pray. Amen.